Welcome to the Epicenter podcast from the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. I'm your host, Erin Goodman, the new director of the Weatherhead Scholars Program. Today, we're tackling the contentious issue of international immigration policies with three sociologists. As we know, people seek membership in another country for many reasons, including simply to make a better living or to reunite with their families. They're sometimes called economic immigrants. But some 80 million people on the planet are in a different category. They're looking for a new home because their lives are in danger or their homelands are unsafe. Once they obtain refugee status, it can take many years before they find a country to welcome them. And while they're waiting in limbo, the rules of membership often shift. The pathways to membership in a new country are complex. From refugees to asylum seekers to permanent legal residents, the criteria for eligibility in these categories are blurry and often change, causing tremendous insecurity for massive numbers of people around the world. In this episode, we'll uncover some of the political motivations behind immigration policy from a historical and political perspective and reflect on the ethics and philosophy of open borders with our three scholars. Talia Schiff is an assistant professor at Tel Aviv University and a lecturer in sociology at Harvard. And previously, she was a Raphael Morrison Dorman Memorial postdoctoral fellow in the Weatherhead Scholars Program. Anna Skarpelis has been a fellow at the Weatherhead Center and at the Reischauer Institute for Japanese Studies. She's currently a NOMIS fellow at the Center for the Theory and History of the Image and an incoming digital postdoc fellow at the Social Science Research Center in Berlin. Elke Winter is a professor at the University of Ottawa and the author of Us, Them, and Others, Pluralism and National Identity in Diverse Societies. All three are members of the Weatherhead Research Cluster on Comparative Inequality and Inclusion. Thanks for being here and welcome. Before we begin, let's review some terminology for our listeners. A migrant is the generic term for someone who moves to another country. A refugee is someone who moves for humanitarian reasons, that is, for their own survival. Refugees may live in intermediary countries or in camps for many years before they find a permanent home. An asylum seeker is someone who also leaves home for humanitarian reasons and arrives at the country where they intend to settle to apply for asylum there. Usually asylum applicants can live in that country until their asylum hearing, but the Trump administration changed that as we'll discuss. After living in the United States for a year, both refugees and asylees can apply for a green card to become a legal permanent resident, which means that they can work and travel back and forth. Many countries require that you're a legal permanent resident for one or more years before applying for citizenship. It's a daunting process for everyone, but especially for people with limited resources. Elka, could you review for us the typical ways people acquire citizenship? People have often asked me, how do you become a citizen? Right? That is not clear. And I think we should just maybe start by just briefly saying there's three ways. Most people become a citizen of a country because uh, they inherit the citizenship status from their parents. Increasingly, it used to be only the fathers who could inherit, but by now, gender equality, also mothers can inherit their citizenship status. This is why dual citizenship is increasing. Um, there's more because mothers and fathers, when they come from different countries, can both transmit their, their citizenship. But also in countries such as the United States, citizenship is conferred to individuals born on the national territory. In the US, this is really important because it was one of the important elements of the 14th Amendment, right? It would allow everyone, also the descendants of slaves, to be, when, when they're born in the United States, to remain there and to be citizens in the full sense of the word. Now, a third way, 
and that's maybe the one we're most interested here in uh, becoming a citizen is by formal application. And here the individual asks for permission to the state of his or her new uh, country of residence. This is called naturalization. So usually the state will say, yes, you become, can become a citizen, but there's certain condition. You need to be free of crim criminal convictions. You need to have been a legal permanent residence for a certain, resident for a certain time. You need to be able to support yourself financially. And uh, you uh, must not have given false uh, testimony at the time you immigrated. And the end game, if you're one of the fortunate, is to be granted citizenship. But it's not as simple as saying you're either a citizen or you're not, is it? Anna? There's, of course, a lot of merit in differentiating between citizens and non-citizens. Um, however, of course, there's, uh, there are many differences within the ostensibly binary status of citizenship, right? So it's not that one is or is not a citizen. Even if you are a citizen, there's, uh, there's a stratification within that status in and of itself. So you might have the same legal status, but your political rights might differ, for example. Um, political scientists have talked about this. There's different forms of semi-citizenship. So Elizabeth Cohen, for example, has written a beautiful book about that um, in particular. Talia, do you have thoughts on this? An assumption many times we have about citizenship is that it is the static right status. Um, and I think one of the things we many times don't think about is how this status, how this institution right, has changed over time. And to understand both the the ways today, right, that are available for people to become citizens, the meaning of citizenship, how we negotiate the boundaries between citizens and non-citizens, we really have to talk about the question also of membership. I think one of my fascinating findings is how contested the meaning of membership is in this context and how central definitions of membership are to you know, how we define and implement asylum law. Anna, you've looked at this question of who gets to be a member of a particular country from a historical perspective. You know, Elke kind of mentioned the, the contemporary ways in which people become citizens. But of course, if you take a more historical perspective, um, there's also um, the kind of less savory ways in which people have become citizens, that is through territorial annexation, ipso facto naturalization, etc. So this is where states um, annex a territory and just decide, you know what, everybody on that territory is going to be part of us now. And that often has led to, you know, forms of inferior citizenship allocation, right? So if you think about Nazi Germany and then annexation of Eastern European countries, um, people weren't given full citizenship rights, of course not, because why would you want to do that? Uh, they were given an inferior form of nationality. So there is this formal integration into the nation or into the empire, whatever you want to call um, non-democratic uh, forms of governance as the national socialist dictatorship. But um, basically what happens, people are integrated against their will. Um, and I think that really goes back to you know, what Talia talked about, um, about different forms of membership, right? What does it mean to be a member in a national polity, in this political community? I also just kind of mentioned indigenous peoples in here, right? There's, um, uh, who were forcibly incorporated, even they didn't want to be there. Forced citizenship is something we don't often think about. That begs the question of a state's motivation, doesn't it? Of course, state interests are very crucial here. So the question is, what does the state gain out of having you as a member? Uh, because it, it's a two-way street, right? As a citizen, you have rights and you have responsibilities, but you're also an asset to the state, whether that is as somebody without political rights whose economic abilities are being exploited. 
rights in the cases of forced labor. Um, and, you know, also not quite as uh, horrendous forms of exploitation. Um, but yeah, so I think it's really important to, uh, to look at state motivations as well. And so citizenship is a really fertile site. It's almost like a Petri dish from which you can read states' priorities. So this is a good segue into the question of states' motivations behind granting membership to some groups, but not others. I'd like to talk about how race plays into citizenship decisions and feelings of belonging in society. Some examples I'm thinking of are the Chinese Exclusion Act vis-a-vis -vis the anti-Asian American sentiment today, as well as the Black Lives Matter movement. As somebody who studies um, Western Europe and, and Japan, mostly colonial Japan and, and Nazi Germany, um, race has always played a role, race and ethnicity have always played a role in citizenship allocation. Uh, but the precise ways in which race and ethnicity have been mobilized to include or exclude populations has always been contingent on state interests. So, yeah, I think it is an obvious thing to say that communities of color have never been historically privileged by states um, and that white populations have been uh, privileged compared to populations of color historically in the West, for sure. Um, but if we look at different empirical instantiations of which communities get excluded when, that can often be directly traced back to specific state interests at any one point in time, right? So are you afraid of a particular community taking over in a particular region? If so, it is fairly easy to construct a moral panic, to construct this group as politi politically problematic, as an outsider to an ostensibly homogeneous political community that all of a sudden becomes uh, very similar internally um, and exclude on that basis. Um, that often happens along lines of color in the United States, for sure. Uh, in Europe, it is um, often a little bit more subtle. It happens along lines of religion, um, but also uh, ethnicity. So when you look at, again, yeah, study Germany, when you look at what happens with um, the assimilation of French communities, Danish communities, Polish communities, Austrian communities in the early 20th century, you see these racializing logics um, at, uh, at play in very, very different ways. Yet the UN's declaration of human rights after World War II and the 1980 Refugee Act in the US were measures designed to remove race from the equation by giving entry to people who were fleeing persecution, regardless of race or affiliation. Talia, you've found that in spite of the humanitarian mandate, racializing logics, to use Anna's phrase, still played a role in US asylum policy. Can you share any insights on this? I think in the context of immigration, especially in the United States after the Cold War, when it is no longer legitimate to explicitly exclude on the basis of race and nationality, and yet race continues to play such a central factor in terms of who we want to admit, who we don't want to admit, who we categorize as deserving and who we don't, um, policymakers have to find another way by which to make these decisions and implicitly, if you will, incorporate race. I think asylum policy here provides a really interesting example of how that is done. So um, during the Cold War in the United States, deservingness for refugees or the definition, the legal definition of a refugee is restricted 
to people escaping communist regimes or communist dominated regimes. Um, the, 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 this was a very nationalistic right, definition that excluded anyone outside of you know, communist dominated territory uh, and so on. This was not a humanitarian based understanding of who is eligible for refugee status. After the Cold War, this changes, and the United States basically incorporates the UN definition of refugee, which is ideologically neutral um, and does not discriminate on the basis of nationality or race. For the first time, the United States is confronted with a challenge. We now have to admit under this new law, the 1980 Refugee Act, any person, regardless of their ideology, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their race, um, to the United States as potential asylum seekers, as long as they can show that they were persecuted or have a well-founded fear of persecution on the basis of these five general ambiguous grounds, race, nationality, political opinion, membership in a particular social group or religion. Um, this, this confronts policymakers with a real problem. And it's really fascinating interviewing policymakers that, um, that were active in the formulation of this new law um, and reading case law and legislative documents. This is a debate that policymakers are having. What do we now do when it is no longer legitimate to exclude people on the basis of their nationality and race? And yet we cannot allow all these people to come in. Now we're talking here about the 19, late 1980s uh, in Central America, specifically El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. This is where, this is the height of the civil wars going on in these countries. So we're talking about tens of thousands of immigrants um, arriving at the US-Mexican border and crossing into the United States claiming for the first time asylum under this new law. Um, given the atrocities that they are experiencing in, um, in Central America, it's also very hard for the US government to categorize them as economic immigrants. And, and, the, and, and policymakers and, the, and immigration policymakers, asylum adjudicators are really confronted with a challenge, but what do we now do? And, and what they do is that they redebate the meaning of deservingness. Um, they basically say, okay, the, if once we define the deserving refugee, the deserving asylum seeker as a political activist who is fleeing to the United States in order to escape oppression, in order to gain political freedom, the argument now becomes this is not enough. This is not, this should not be their criteria for determining who is really deserving of refugee status. And for the first time during this period, they actually construct a new understanding of deservingness. Uh, one which centers on what I term immutability, um, meaning that the focus shifts from a person's motivation to flee to the type of trait on account of which a person is persecuted. So if a person is persecuted on account of an immutable trait, a trait that one cannot change, or that is so fundamental to one's individual identity that he or she should not be required to change it, they are now deserving and eligible of refugee status. I say all of this because in a really fascinating turn, this becomes the argument for excluding the vast majority of Central Americans um, entering the United States in the 1980s and 1990s, and now the current wave of, of, of new right, um, 
uh, immigrants coming in from the same countries fleeing gang violence, they are excluded not on the basis of the, not, not, not on the fact that they are economic immigrants, but the argument goes that they are escaping types of harms that are targeting traits which are not immutable, which are not fundamental to their individual identity. Um, so race here is very central, but it's really interesting in terms of to think about how it is reformulated into the language as, you know, in, in terms of deservingness and, and humanitarian discourse. Elka, Talia is explaining an elaborate workaround to deny entry to refugees. Talia, this was a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting research that you're conducting there. And it is interesting that we see in, in, you know, we have a different context. The context that I'm studying is mostly Canada. Uh, but I hear that from, uh, from scholars in the, in the United States that it's a similar problem. Now, even if sometimes refugees are make it, right, they are, uh, and you show how you uh, um, explained how difficult this has been, become to be accepted. But even if they are accepted, what we see now in, in Canada is that the, the as notions of deservingness have shifted from, um, if you want, the rest of the earth, the poor and the uh, and, and refugees to the more skilled and those with valuable human capital, we can see that not only are categories and who's a desirable immigrant is changing, but also who's a desirable citizen. For example, 42% um, of UN member states, such as the United States, that aim to attract migrants with valuable skills. Um, and that would be uh, people who are educated, speak several languages, but also have um, a background in business, in, in IT, um, in, you know, they're doctors, chemists, uh, and uh, have so valuable skills that are good for the market. Now, these criteria of being a good immigrant are now put on um, reflected in citizenship tests. And what we see in Canada is that the criteria of passing a test have become so difficult that sometimes refugees who obviously joined the country from, for humanitarian reasons um, have difficulties in passing this test. And who is mostly affected are refugee women. Just imagine, it is easy for someone who knows how to read and to write to pass a citizenship test. But if you are from a country and you are a woman who can barely hold a pen, who is illiterate, who cannot read and write, then taking the test, even though for many of us it is easy, it's really a big hurdle. Um, so we can see that women, for example, from Syria and Afghanistan are falling behind. Often their husbands will get citizenship in Canada, but they won't make the, their, their wives don't make the, the cut because they just don't pass the test. And I know that colleagues in, um, in the United States have found the same. So in that sense, they are on national territory but see, even then, the um, the the migrant, the, the refugees, or some migrants are actually taking a much longer time to become citizens. And since we also know that being a citizen, as usually comes with higher salary and a more secure status, we can really see a two-class society in terms of that emerging in both countries. I don't know the numbers for the U.S., but the the, the problem is um, very much the same because who is seen as a good migrant and a good citizen has changed so much. Anna. Elke brought up the question of citizenship tests. And of course, the question here is, what are these testing, right? I grew up, I was born and raised in Germany as a child of a Greek person and of a somebody who became German in their first year of life. Um, I never had to pass a test. 
I don't know if I could pass the test. Um, so the question is, what are we testing for? Are we testing for political commitments to democracy, to other forms of values, uh, to feminism, to liberalism? Um, or are we using these as a means of exclusion? So when you look at what Mississippi did and what other Southern states did, they imposed literacy tests on black populations, basically saying, you know what? We don't know if you're a competent citizen. Let's see, we're gonna test this. And if you pass the test, uh, you're allowed to vote. Of course, these were thinly veiled uh, anti-voting uh, uh, tests that worked to effectively disenfranchise African-American populations. Um, when I gave these literacy tests to my undergraduate students at New York University in the 2010s, wholly capable people, um, I think I had a failure rate of about 95%. I then administered the same test to PhD students and professors in the Department of Sociology with a similar failure rate. Of course, citizenship tests these days don't have such a high failure rate from which we can say that they're not an explicit instrument of exclusion as these literacy tests were a means for disenfranchisement. However, we have to look at what these are doing and if they are indeed a test of how well people can assimilate and whether they can become competent citizens, then we have to ask the questions, why do American citizens, German citizens, French citizens not have to do exactly the same thing and pass the same test? Let's talk about some recent changes in immigration policy. Talia, we know there have been some abrupt changes and rollbacks under the Trump administration, and this has been your focus. Can you share some of your major findings? So in my research, I have been following troubling changes in immigration and more specifically in asylum law that have occurred under the Trump administration. Um, both through an examination of case law legislation, but also through interviews with over 35 asylum officers who worked under the Trump administration. Um, and I've, I've identified two central types of changes specifically to asylum policy that occur under the Trump administration. One is the imposition of a growing number of restrictions on pre-established standards. So in strict, uh, restrictive interpretations of existing codified law, um, while these were also characteristic of the pre-Trump years, under the Trump regime, these limitations increase both in number and in scope. Whole groups once eligible for asylum are suddenly recategorized as ineligible. The second change is the enactment of of, of new asylum policies and law and laws, which fundamentally change the nature of asylum adjudications. So laws that many asylum officers and immigration officials viewed as undermining the true humanitarian mission of asylum. And I'll say uh, two words about that in just a sec. To give you an example of these new laws that I'm talking about, one that has been quite uh, discussed in the news recently is the migrant, uh, pro, uh, sorry, migrant protection protocols uh, known as MPP, which state that all asylum seekers must wait outside the United States for the duration of their proceedings, leading to the um, enactment of base of, of in practice refugee camps on the US-Mexican borders with immigrants waiting there for months, sometimes for a year or two, um, 
living uh, under horrific conditions. A second example is the third country transit bar. In practice, this means that any asylum applicant from El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, who has to cross through Mexico and has not applied for asylum in Mexico cannot apply for asylum in the United States. Now, in my research, I focus not only on the implications of these changes on asylum seekers and Research has showed and well documented how the number of asylum seekers um, granted under these new policies has been reduced significantly. And we're talking about just you know, 90% reduction um, in terms of who is now eligible from these countries um, for asylum status. But I also focus on the implications that these policies have on state bureaucrats who now have to implement them. Through my interviews, many of these many of these state bureaucrats and asylum officers and immigration judges define these policies or define a, a tension that they regard as irreconcilable between the moral goals of the institution and their job, their role as, as state officials in implementing these new policies. And one of the questions that I'm interested in is how do they navigate this tension? To give you a quick example of one of my findings, in difference to asylum officers who worked prior to Trump and who generally described themselves, despite their critique of the system, as working with the system, many of the immigration officers and asylum um, officers who work under Trump described feeling as they as though they were working in enemy within enemy territory. Specifically, the heightened restrictions imposed by the Trump administration on established asylum standards and the more stringent supervisory review of asylum officers' decisions, the shift in policy encouraging officers to approach applicants with heightened suspicion and to deny their claims forced these officers to choose their battles. Officers described how they constantly debated which are the especially deserving cases worth fighting for and which are the cases they are willing to give up on. Forced to make these decisions, unable to fight for every case under this new regime, officers, bureaucrats describe feeling morally compromised, emotionally stressed, and in very interesting ways, this really shapes their whole evaluation process. My findings actually show that they conduct much shorter interviews in this context, that they become emotionally detached, feeling like they can't, um, they're powerless to really change the system from within. Um, I'll stop here, but just to say that I think that this is a very interesting moment to think not only about the implications of these new policies and laws on incoming asylum seekers, but also on how, how bureaucracy deals with this moment, the durability of institutions and so on. Wow, that was a fascinating look into the experience of those who are implementing these policies. Following on the subject of stringent rules, Elka, you've looked into the practice of citizenship revocation, the taking away of one's citizenship. What's this about? So usually uh, citizenship revocation, the re withdrawal of citizenship, particularly also after the experience, um, Anna, as you mentioned, with the Nazi regime, was actually something that was not widely practiced. However, we've seen this return to um, 
many countries in the recent decade. And some authors have called, like Audrey Macklin in Canada, have called this the return of banishment. And one of the important rights, if you are a citizen, is the, um, the freedom of movement. So you can move, you can hold a passport, but you also have this legal status that protects you from deportation. Now, the uh, return of um, the revocation of citizenship is exactly that. Your citizenship can be withdrawn, and that means you can be revoked. And this also ties in nicely to uh, this, uh, the research that uh, Talia is, uh, is conducting with um, the uh, applicants for refugee status. Um, now, for example, one of the problems that um, uh, people when they apply for refugee status have is that sometimes they cannot say exactly the truth in order to protect um, their relatives back home uh, for, from being persecuted. So if they lie, for example, then um, this, and this is detected afterwards, they may also, even though they have already become US citizens, their citizenship may be re revoked and hence they can be um, uh, deported. Even if you've been a law-abiding citizen for years, you can still be deported if someone detects that you've given false testimony at the time you applied for citizenship. Now, this is really something very severe. It is, an, if you want, a very severe act of unbelonging because it removes the convicted individual, right, uh, that was felt secure because he or she is a citizen. It removes them not only from the society, as, for example, imprisonment would do, but it also removes them from um, the national community because they will be withdrawn their legal status, as well as from the collective imaginary by the denial of belonging. Basically, they're being told you never belonged here. And in some research that I have conducted, it shows that this is not only something that penalizes the individual that is convicted and whose citizenship is withdrawn, but also their families, their communities, and everyone who's associated with that, right? They're associated with being um, by their ethnicity with, um, or religion as being uh, close to the person who's been um, convicted, and so they are punished as a collectivity and not only as an individual. I want to bring up the topic of colonial pasts and how colonial legacies influence contemporary liberal democratic citizenship practice. Two examples that are coming to mind in terms of the US colonial past are the 1917 Jones Act in Puerto Rico, which granted citizenship to Puerto Ricans at the peak of World War I, so those citizens could then defend the United States. And another example is the 1966 Cuban Adjustment Act, which created an easier path to citizenship for Cubans in the United States, which also does harken back to our colonial past at the turn of the century. Anna, could you give an example of some history about this colonial past and how it informs our liberal democratic citizenship practices today? So you brought up the Jones Act. Um, and of course, the, the counter example to that in United States history is how the Philippines were treated who were promised citizenship in exchange for military participation during World War II, as um, scholars like Katrina Kissembing-King are showing in their work, um, and then had those promised rights revoked, as so often happens when uh, geopolitical fortunes turn. Um, in my own work, I, I kind of look at this as a case of racial realpolitik, if you will. Um, and by that, I mean a situation where states uh, consider uh, very strategically and cold-heartedly what is in their interest in uh, 
a geopolitical sense. So this is informed by geopolitical considerations, by balance of power. How does my state or the state I represent relate to others? And how can I defend uh, and strengthen the power of that nation state vis-a-vis -vis other states? And that sometimes leads to racial integration and promises for racial minorities. But when the tides turn, that also often leads to taking those rights away. So it's a very strategic form of wielding power. Um, another way of looking at what I would call and others have also called colonial hangovers. So when we look at post-war Europe, when we look at post-war Japan, there's this fiction of national homogeneity that takes place. Could you say more about that? Um, so there's this presumption that the population of Japan, say, is homogeneous. The population of Germany is homogeneous, doesn't contain many ethnic minorities. But that, of course, ignores massive population movements beforehand. And so it creates this fiction in the post-war, and this comes to the fore in the 1970s with labor migration from Italy, from Turkey, from, from, from Greece, for example, in Germany, that these people cannot integrate because Germany is homogeneous. However, what happens in 1945 is that a lot of people who are not really ethnic Germans become German. And so you have this, um, I would say ethnically very, very diverse population that where the state then imposes this fiction of homogeneity on it. Um, seen from a kind of positive perspective, that means that integration and assimilation is actually quite easy. Of course, there are hiccups, you know, displaced populations were mocked and, and made fun of and discriminated against in the early post-war Germany. But, you know, by the 1960s and 1970s, you know, by that pretty, you know, almost gone away. People had been integrated, people with Polish last names, people with, you know, Eastern European last names, were, had become pretty much German. So these are, you know, obviously non-Jewish populations, um, uh, populations who had not been, uh, who had not been murdered. But what we look, what we see when we look at national socialist involuntary assimilation practices is that a lot of people who are non-ethnic Germans become integrated into, um, into Germanness in some ways, right? And so there's various groups that fall into uh, fall into that net. Um, so these are, you know, phenotypically desirable people and populations who are considered to be desirable population growth, as the uh, concept uh, and description went. These are populations from within Europe that would have been considered non-German and that would not have been able to um, naturalize. Uh, after 1945, to be frank, because they would be considered other, right? And so then uh, the people who are considered to be outsiders and non-citizens um, are people that come from the South, that come from further East. Um, and so what I want to point to here is that um, when we think about membership, when we think about belonging, when we think about assimilation, there are all these fictions at work um, and they are often directed by the state. And that in many ways is one of the fundamental contradictions of dictatorships versus liberal democracies, that sometimes authoritarian states are more assimilationist than liberal democracies. Um, of course, they don't do this for emancipatory goals and they don't grant the same rights, but citizenship can be more open under authoritarian regimes than under liberal democracies. And I think that is something that we need to um, really grapple with as we defend liberal democracy, if that is what we want to do.
Let's take up the question of reasonable limits. I know it's a contentious issue. Are there reasonable limits to the number of people a country can or should welcome based on that country's capacity to provide services? Uh, so asking the question about um, numbers and limits um, is, can be interpreted in a way as to insinuate, you know what, there's so many people displaced, it's such a big problem. Our nation states will be overwhelmed. There's no way that you know the US or Western Europe can deal with this massive displacement of hordes from the Middle East, if you allow me to reappropriate the racist slogan from the late 19th and early 20th century. The kind of longer term view is to look at what do we owe the world and other populations um, in terms of thinking about our historical trajectories, the wealth of our nations on whose backs that wealth is created, and really thinking about what decolonization could look like. And by that, I really mean the Western nation state developed in tandem with the colonies, right? And so then the question is, how do we think about our responsibility? And what does decolonization really look like? How can we think about membership? Is it, you know, in a tit for tat way of reparations. You know what, my country colonized yours for so and so many years. Let's think about how we can repair that. That often won't quite work because the only way to repay is by completely expropriating the West, to be honest, because of decades and centuries of exploitation of the non-West. So maybe we can think about another way of taking this legacy seriously and thinking about a decolonial responsibility for the West and what that could look like. That is an uh, interesting and very thought-provoking um, idea, uh, Anna. That's I really this is and it uh, I like it and it it resonates with some of what is, has been written in the in the literature on on this question. Now, indeed, um, if you the question about limits reminds us a bit of the slogan: "The boat is full," right? So that seems as if. Uh, uh, there are indeed these hordes that you have been um, uh, quoting in, in quotation marks. But what we should not forget that many people actually don't want to move. Uh, they don't want to leave their homes, their families, their, the, the country they, they're known, the, the languages they've grown up to, uh, in and so on. So it is really not only based, basically a second chance. There may be some who want to move, but many do not want to move. Um, in her book, uh, The Birthright Lottery, Canadian scholar Eilat Sasha has described citizenship as the most important global sorting me mechanism impacting a person's life chances. Basically, what she argues is the accident by birth, right? And this recalls what I said uh, in the beginning, how do you become a citizen? You're either born to certain parents to inherit the citizenship or you're born on a certain territory. This accident by, of birth is nothing that anyone deserved or actually did anything to, to obtain. It is pure luck whether I was born in a rich country with a good passport or I'm a baby born in a poor country and I have a passport that does not allow me to travel and it's a country that is torn by civil war. So in that sense, um, Sachar pr proposes a levy on the rich states of all of us who were lucky enough to be born in a rich country that we actually owe to those who are not so lucky. And this, in a way, uh, resonates, um, Anna, with what you have been saying. So maybe if we 
put those things together that we say, well, as long as there is a large imbalance of wealth between countries, the global south, the global north, there will be migrants, not because they want to necessarily come up, uh, particularly in a cold country like Canada, but because there are, um, they are in need. So in that sense, the only thing that we can make um, actually do is to make the process of migration um, to, to possible, transparent, make sure that it's a fair process, similar as what uh, Talia is, is researching. And we should also not forget that in many of the countries that we are living, actually, we are in need of new populations because our populations tend to decline, right? We have aging societies, we have um, uh, women are being not giving enough uh, birth to uh, so to a certain extent migrants are helping us they're creating jobs they're coming uh, and, and populating um, the societies that are in a way in the in decline. Talia do you have thoughts on this? The, I, mean, I, I don't have I don't think anyone of us has a you know a defined answer as to are there exactly justifiable limits to the number of new citizens a country can welcome at any given time. But I think this is such an important question, one that is perhaps not debated enough. At the end, right, asylum, refugee policy, citizenship decisions, they are centered on the question of when and how it is justifiable to draw a limit, a line between those that are in and those that are out, those that are deserving, those that are not deserving. Uh, this is the definition Right, of citizenship as an institution, it is making these constant negotiations. This is actually a question that I, I just debated with my students in class today, right? What is the meaning of open borders? How would this fundamentally change conceptions of membership, of nationality and citizenship? I think that many of the categorizations that constitute current immigration and asylum policy, economic immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers, do not take into account the global inequality that exists between the global north, for example, and the global south, in, in the sense that we cannot really differentiate or draw a clear cut line between economic needs, deprivation, and various forms of persecution. That, that clear cut line does not exist. Playing the devil's advocate here, one more time, aren't there economic arguments for why a state might want to limit immigrants? I'll let economists speak to that, but I think from a cursory reading of, of the literature, of the economics of immigration, uh, there's a net positive effect of immigration, as far as I call my reading, in that you know, immigrants create jobs. I, I, I live in New York City now, and you know, without immigrants, the city would completely and utterly collapse. And of course, I have a selfish reason to say this as myself, an immigrant to the United States and as a green card holder now. So I have a vested interest in declaring the integration um, and legal recognition of immigrants um, as useful. But we should re uh, recall, and, and I think Anna mentioned this a couple of uh, indirectly, that some of the civil wars and failing states that are um, the producers of migrant flows are actually not so only so by their own doing, right? Uh, many of the, the the countries in the global north also had their their fair share in creating and stirring up, uh, at least not um, alleviating the conflicts uh, in these countries. And hence, we have a refugee crisis. 
with an estimated 80 million refugees around the world seeking security and a new home, it's clear that the need for sensible immigration policies is only increasing. How can this monumental responsibility be shared across nations? And are global institutions the answer to this global problem? Does the new Biden administration offer signs of hope? Elka? Yes, to the question um, about the global institutions, I cannot speak to the institutions, but I think what the world will need to do is we will work, have to work together. Otherwise, uh, it is not possible to, uh, um, you know, solve this this bigger problem because it's not one country or a couple of countries. We really need to uh, to work transparently and cooperatively by no longer um, uh, stereotyping uh, people off because of their ethnic and racial background. Maybe that in itself are steps in the right direction, and then we just have to wait and see how the next steps will follow. It's not an easy task um, for no administration, uh, but I think what we've seen is uh, is is uh, at least uh, more promising than what we've seen before. Talia, we're too early into the Biden administration to know exactly what changes it will bring, and there have been many promises, many of them. Uh, are still at a level of discourse, right, and have uh, not been acted upon in terms of changing various immigration policies from the Trump era. Um, but I do think that one of the things that we are seeing already, even though it's early on, as, as Alka said, um, is a change of discourse. And, and I think that that change is very welcome and really will allow different form of conversation and debate that we need to have in this country about immigration policy. Let's end on that subtle note of hope. This has been a thought-provoking discussion. I want to thank our scholars, Talia Schiff, Anna Skarpelis, and Elka Vinter, and a big thanks to our listeners. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Epicenter podcast on your favorite listening platform. I'm Erin Goodman, signing off from the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, a research center at Harvard University supporting dialogue on complex international and global issues, just like this one. <laughs>